This morning's sermon text is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You know, over this uh, series, we've talked a lot about races and racing, and, you know, we've uh, referenced the whole idea of a a marathon. You know, a marathon is a 26.2-mile race. It's a it's really a, a grueling race. It demands not just strength and endurance, but also strategy about how to preserve and strengthen energy. Um, what might surprise you about the nature of these marathons is um, at each marathon, there are more than a few people that cheat. They cheat. They cut corners. They switch bibs. They, um, they go under tapes. They go around the course. In fact, in the Marine Corps Marathon, there were 250 people that were disqualified for cheating. Now, some perhaps uh, made some mistakes or they took a wrong turn, but many were cheating to just get ahead. Um, In one race in Mexico City, there were 30,000 participants. 11,000 were disqualified. Now, many of them perhaps got lost or got confused. Some were found riding on public transportation to just get ahead. It's just amazing. They, they didn't finish the race. They didn't compete according to the rules. They didn't win the prize. Paul here gives us his own word. He finished the race. He fulfilled the ministry. And, to, and now to Timothy, he's calling him to continue on to fulfill the ministry. This is a solemn charge. It's, it's kind of the, the climax of the whole letter in terms of kind of giving the mantle of responsibility to Timothy. You know, John Calvin, the great reformer of the 16th century, said it is as if, it's as if Paul wrote this letter in his own blood. You, you, you hear him, his death is imminent, he is giving the baton to Timothy. And he's saying, be sober-minded, you know, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, And then he says, fulfill your ministry. That's what he's going to do. So we're going to look at this text, and there's really four points to this text. The first is the context of ministry. You have to understand the theater in which he is being asked to minister and the ones in which we minister. The context of the ministry we're going to see is the very presence of God. Then you see the charge to ministry. That is what Timothy is called to do, which is preach. You you all may not be preachers. You may have other ministries, but, but to be faithful to the charge of ministry. And then third, the challenge to ministry. You're going to see that in three and four. And then, 
And then last, the reward for ministry. So we'll just go through it in a very linear fashion. But look with me at the context of ministry. In other words, the context in which he is ministering. In verse 1, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So, so Paul is giving a weighty charge here. So it's not just the, his own death that makes this a solemn charge, but it's the fact that, Timothy, you're ministering in the very presence of God, that God sees everything you do. God is present with you as you minister. Uh, this isn't like God's some earthly king keeping watch over his people. No, this is the maker of heaven and earth. So, Timothy, wherever, wherever you serve, in whatever corner of the world, God sees you. His, Psalm 103, his eyes rove to and fro over the earth, seek, seeking those who fear him. So you see this idea that God is watchful, and Timothy is to understand himself as ministering before God himself. Is this the way you see yourself when you walk out some ministry? that God himself sees and is present there to help and encourage. But it's not just the presence of God. It's also the coming of Christ. Notice, you're in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to come and judge the living and the dead. Jesus Christ will come one day, and he will judge the living and the dead. All those who are dead, those who are dead don't get out of judgment because they died before he came. Oh, they'll be raised and they'll be judged. He is going to judge the living. Timothy, you need to know this. It gives impetus to preaching. It gives impetus to our striving with the lost. It gives encouragement to us that there will be a judgment day that our service and our ministry matters. It also keeps Timothy on his toes. He has a day that he will stand before the judge. Was he a good steward of his responsibilities? So you see the, the context in which he is asking Timothy to continue to fulfill his ministry. This context of the presence of God and the, and the coming of Christ. Now, this is a word for Christian leaders, for sure. That there is a day that we'll stand before God and give an accounting for how we have served you. How, we've, how we have tried to care for you. How we, have, how we have tried to lead you. It's a sobering thought in Hebrews 13, we read, obey your leaders and submit to them. That's what you're supposed to do. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's what we have to do. We have to give this account to God. All the leaders of this church. For me, that's a sobering reality. It's both sobering and satisfying. Because I know that there will be a day, he says in 1 Peter 5, 4, he says that when the chief shepherd appears, there's an accounting to be done. So it's sobering, but it's also exciting that what we do matters. Caring for you matters. God cares for you. He goes on and says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. There's this relationship that we have, that we do. We serve each other in the presence of God, knowing that there'll be a day that we'll all stand before him and be accountable to how we served, how we received that kind of leadership. But it's also a word to Christian ministry. I mean, if you're a Christian here, and if you're not in direct full-time ministry, I want you to see that you still carry out 
and exercise your gifts in the context of the presence of God and the coming of Christ. And what does this mean? I think it's great news, actually. The things that you do are seen. Nothing that you do is unseen. Nothing that you do is unnoticed. You may not be given credit for it by the people that you seek to serve, but God sees it. It says it right there. I mean, Jesus says in Matthew 10, 42, he says, and whoever gives one of these even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Do you know what this means? It means that those of you who serve in very, very perhaps positions that don't have a lot of light shown on them. Maybe you're in the nursery, maybe with your children, maybe you're in the media, maybe you're handing out bulletins, maybe you're doing behind the scenes work. Do you see what he's saying here? God sees you. You do it in his presence and with that day that comes. And may that encourage you. May that encourage you to engage in ministry and, and not be concerned when people fail to appreciate the work that you do. But I think there's a word here, too, for the non-Christian. Uh, if you think about it for a minute, if this is true, that Jesus will come and judge the living and the dead, if you're here and you're not a Christian, <clears throat> or you're in, you're in significant conversations with non-Christians, this is a day that you will face. I mean, just assume for a minute that it's true, that there'll be a day you stand before Jesus Christ. Oh, what do you say on that day? How do you give an accounting of your life? I mean, I don't think anybody in today's world is arrogant enough to think that they have it all done right. So what do we say? What are the excuses? He's seen everything we've done. There's no evidence that we present. He knows all the data. So what do we say on that day? May I, may I encourage you to see this as kind of um, a gracious invitation, maybe a gracious warning to repent to the one who will judge. Jesus will come again, it says, not to bear sin, but to judge sin. And so the way for peace for the, for the non-Christian is to go to the one who will judge sin. He's the one who paid for sin. And we go and repent. We seek forgiveness for our lives. For the things that we did do that we shouldn't have. And the things, the many, many things that we didn't do that we should have. That we would repent to him and seek forgiveness. This is really a call to faith. People will often say, well, why don't you give altar calls? This is kind of the version of an altar call. Calling the non-Christian to faith. To believe that Jesus Christ is the judge who will come and I want to be reconciled to him before I see him in death. But it's also to you, the Christian. I'm calling you to faith. I'm calling you to believe this, that, that God really is present in our lives and that Jesus Christ really will come and he'll judge the living and the dead and to live in light of that. I'm calling you to adjust your lives this week. In light of that truth, that's what I mean by calling you to faith, to walk by faith and not by sight. So that's the context that Paul is reminding Timothy. This is the context in which you minister, that God is present and Christ will come and make all things right. But notice he reminds him of the charge of the ministry. Timothy, this is what you're supposed to do. Look with me at verse 2. In verse 2, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. 
So here, Paul is reminding him of this call to preach. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. We studied 1 Tim last year. We've finished up 2 Tim this year. This idea is he's told him to teach, to preach, to urge these things, to remind people of these things. Paul has more than half a dozen times called Timothy to speak forth the word of God. Notice what he says, though. He says, preach the word. Uh, the word would be the gospel. It would be the word of truth. We saw it last week. The scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation. This is, Timothy, what you're to preach. You're to preach the word. You're to preach that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. That Jesus Christ is the one man between God and man. He's the one mediator. This is, you're not called to preach anything original. You don't have to be creative. You don't have to come up with some new ideas about God. Just give them what has been given to you. That's the role of the preacher, just to pass on the same gospel that's been preached in every generation from the beginning. Just pass it on. But notice he goes on and tells them how to do it. He says, preach in and out of season. I think he just means by this kind of an urgency uh, whether it feels right or not, you know, whether it's convenient or not. Maybe, maybe Timothy was wearying. And that's what most scholarship thinks. He's wearying under the pressure. Maybe he's becoming a little reticent from preaching because of the blowback it was creating. And he says, no, in and out of season. He's calling for a readiness to not give way to laziness. And I think the urgency here is because of the, the message that God has sent forth a son to take on flesh, dwell among us, give his own life for us, be raised that we might be reconciled to God. It's incredible. What, a, what other message would you want to hear? God himself has given us a way of being reconciled. And so he's saying, be urgent about this. And not only is the message important, your reception of it is critical. To believe in the word is to have life. To disregard this gospel is to have death. That's the significance of the word. So be urgent about it. You know, the Puritans back in the 17th and 18th and even into the 19th century, uh, they took out the stained glass from their churches. And when they built meeting houses, they put in clear glass. And one of the reasons why they put clear glass in is so that the preacher, when he's preaching, could see the cemetery. And be reminded that's where all the people in front of him were going. And so that there would be an earnestness to his preaching, knowing that you'll all face death. And will you be ready for that day? So they made the glass clear so he could see the cemetery. So friends, in fact, uh, Richard, Baxter, uh, Richard Baxter, a 19th or um, a 17th century Puritan, said these words. He says, whatever you do, let others see that you're in earnest. You can't win men's hearts by jesting with them or telling them a smooth tale <clears throat> or patching up gaudy oration. Men will not cast away their greatest treasures before a drowsy request or to one who does not care much that his appeal be considered. In other words, we need to be earnest, earnest in our preaching, earnest in our sharing. But notice also he goes on and says, reprove and rebuke and exhort. You know, think about those words for a minute. Uh, the preaching ministry is to be so comprehensive that it involves words of severity, right, like rebuke, and also words of gentleness, like encourage. 
that the pulpit ministry should be doing both. Reproving is just correcting you. It's like a person wandering off the path, and they need to be brought back onto the path as they hear the word of God preached. And they begin to, they kind of review the word preached, they see their life, and they they say, I got to make some corrections here. Maybe I'm getting casual. Maybe I am walking in a known sin that's going to be ruinous to my family. Maybe I am putting my business forward in front of my family. And it's a correcting. But notice it also involves rebuke. Rebuke is kind of a confrontational word. Are you open to that kind of confrontation from the pulpit? Again, today, I think people want the church to be a safe spot. They don't want to be threatened. They want to be accepted as they are. And yet, clearly, he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now, there's clearly a need to exhort. That word kind of means to come alongside. You know, just like a friend, come alongside and pick them up and kind of help them along the way. It, it's, a, it's a both and. That's the nature of this preaching ministry. It involves both correction, confrontation, and encouragement. Notice also that it's to be done with complete patience, he says. Complete patience. Why? Interesting, out of all the things you could have said, that preaching is why patience? Because we're so dull. We're spiritually dull, right? We, we don't change fast. I mean, the, the process of conversion can be very long. Think of how often you heard the gospel before coming to faith in Christ. And think of how the things you're still trying to change in your life. I got to do that different. You know, it, it's just slow. The Lord uses this incremental working of the word in your life to change you. Every preacher would love to say at one time, Oh, I get it. Makes sense to you cognitively. I'm going to change, but we don't. It's like when I was teaching, when Carol and I were teaching the kids to say thank you and please. They're great at it now, but it took about 100,000 times. Or not just that, pick up your shoes, clean your room, whatever the case is. You want to say it once and have it stick. But does it? No. We remind ourselves that preaching is like parenting in many ways. It's just... God just graciously letting the word roll over you and over time kind of conform you to his image through the preaching of the word. So there needs to be patience. And if you are impatient, just consider how patient God has been with us. Wasn't he patient with us? I think about my life and all the circles I made before he tried to draw me out and put me on a straight line. God was very patient with us. And it bids us to be patient with each other. That's why I love long-term pastors. I mean, in a, in a foregone year, they would move ministers in some denominations every two to three years. And it's sad that way. You need to see the word applied over the years from the same voice, the same years. You see my life change. I see your life change. That's the way the church is to function. But notice the last thing he says is that you're to preach in and out of season. You're to reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience. And then he says, and teaching. It's interesting. You got preaching and teaching together. Aren't they the same? Well, kind of, sort of, not really. You know, the preaching is kind of declarative and teaching is more explanation per se. In other words, Timothy is to teach and explain the scriptures. So you don't need to sit here and listen to me give you my views on cultural trends and 
political analysis and kind of some pop psychology or tips from life, you want to hear the scriptures explained. I mean, when he says teach, he's saying explain the text that God has given to us. That's what expository preaching is. Expository preaching is just taking the main point of a text, and that should be the main point of the sermon. That's all it is. It's trying to explain the scripture. So I'm not going to use the book of Ruth, for example, to teach you how to treat your mother-in-law. That's not the point of the book. She was a wonderful daughter-in-law, but that's not the point of the book. So we talk about the faithfulness of God and saving Israel. That's the point of Ruth, bringing forth a, a redeemer, Boaz. So we want the preaching to be teaching as well. So now most of you aren't going to be preachers, and so I've gone on a bit about preaching. But though you're not preachers, do you see the primacy of preaching? Do you see its importance? 2005, Barna Research Group found that among Protestant churches, only 35% saw preaching as significant. In fact, John Stott, and, uh, he recently died, but he uh, wrote in the early 60s. Here's, here's what he said. He said, the prophets of doom in today's church are confidently predicting that the day of preaching is over. It is a dying art, they say, an outmoded form of communication, an echo from an abandoned past. Uh, they were saying back in the 60s and 70s, you see it in the church growth movement, you see it in the emergent church movement, you see this moving away from this kind of didactic teaching here. But I want to remind you, friends, that the lifeblood of the church, its growth, its health, its flourishing, only comes by the word of God. Just the word of God, just being declared to you and allowing the spirit of God to apply it to your souls. Do you see it as primary? Uh, do you come on Sunday morning wanting to hear what God has to say? Even though your need list may be over here, the text may be over here, but do you accept that as just the sovereign purposes of God, that this is what I need to be hearing today and adjusting my life? And if you don't hear the sermon, do you go back and listen to it? Do you want to know what God has to say to us on these issues of life? And do you long for the effect of the word? You know, the purpose of preaching isn't informational strictly. It's really transformational. It's trying to deliver you from your own idolatries. It's trying to save us from ourself. It's trying to save us from our absolute self-centeredness and give us an idea about who God is. You know, when Peter wrote his letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, Like newborn infants crave pure spiritual milk, that you may grow up in salvation. To what degree have you grown up in salvation? Because as the word is preached to you, it's to change and conform you to the image of God. It's to adjust you. It's to, it's to make you more into the image of Christ. This is part of why there's reproving and rebuking and encouraging. Do you realize every week, it's kind of like a time of discipline. You know, we think of discipline as corrective discipline, right? Corrective being, you're doing something wrong and so you get corrected. Uh, but discipline is really just, the, the Greek word just means learning. And, and, and there is something called formative discipline, where you're being formed week after week by the word that's being given to you. Do you see it that way? Do you see that each week? Because week after week after, God is just slowly changing you into himself. 
through the preaching of the word. I hope you see it that way. And that's the way I understand it. That's the way I try to explain it and apply it to you. So this is the charge. The charge is preach the word. That may not be your ministry, but you have a ministry, as we're going to find, of listening. And that's what we see. Paul moves from, here's the context. You're preaching before the presence of God in light of the return of Christ. You're to preach the word. But there are challenges to ministry. That's the third point. Look with me at three and four. In three and four, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Oh, this is really interesting. So we have, through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, we have heard many warnings about false teachers. Here we have a warning about being a false listener. In other words, they have these itching ears. Uh, Paul's saying that, Timothy, you're going to be preaching in a context where people won't want to hear the truth that you want to declare. They want the humorous. They want the speculative. They want the fanciful. That's why, you know, to a lot more people will show up if we have a conference on the end times than if we have a conference on sacrificial giving. There are going to be two different groups there. Uh, people will move towards not wanting to hear truth. They're going to want their ears tickled. He says they're going to wander away. Notice they're not going to turn away, but they wander away because over time, Wanting to pursue things they want to hear, it's going to lead them away from the truth. It's eventually, it's over time. And I've seen this in people's lives. They pull away from preaching, they pull away from the word, and they find themselves getting to the periphery of Christianity, and then they begin, many, rolling out of it. And this idea of tickling the ears, friends, it's easier to hear things that make us feel good. Right? I mean, it's just easier. People want to hear about their own goodness. They don't want to hear about their sinfulness. They want to hear about what makes life better for them. They don't want to hear things that may make life more difficult for them. Uh, they don't want to, they want the church to be silent on money or personal moral issues. And, and they want to hear things that make them, and they'll accumulate teachers. They'll seek teachers. They'll pursue, we had that with the mask mandate. Pursuing preachers that would support their view of masks. So, so, I mean, we see it played out in life. Friends, really, the, the issue comes to what kind of listener are you? To what degree of responsibility do you bear in listening well when you hear something you disagree with? What happens to your soul? Do you want to flee or do you want to, do you want to discuss and try to find middle ground or better understanding? I mean, the, the, the irony of, of the church, the greatest threat to the church has never been the persecution that comes from government or culture. That has tended to galvanize the church. The greatest threat to the church has come about by false teaching and false listening. That's what brought, has brought the church to its lowest ebb. And so what kind of listener are we? I had a, a, there's a former member of the church. This is years ago, years ago. And uh, she said, I wish your preaching was fluffier. I think that was a term, fluffier. Honestly, 
And uh, no, 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 you may want the same thing, so I, I get it. And I said, well, I said, I can appreciate that. I, I like Fluffy, actually, for a lot of things, pillows and that sort of thing. Um, I said, I just don't know that you'll want it Fluffy if you find you have stage four cancer. I think you may want it a little grittier, a, a, a little firmer. I, I think you may want to be prepared a little bit more. And the irony is Jeremiah says the same thing. Jeremiah says, the prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their own direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? That's kind of sobering, isn't it? I mean, all the accumulated sermons you hear, is it preparing you for an end? Now, I'm sympathetic to you folks. Expository preaching is more difficult to listen to. If I just could cram this thing into about an eight-minute TED Talk, I mean, you'd love it. I mean, the place would be rocking. Or a Garrison Keeler, you know, a Prairie Home Companion. I just kind of, if I was more of a storyteller, you could kind of weave a story. And, and that's easier to listen to. I know that I demand more of you going 30 or 35 or 40 minutes and working through the text. It is harder. There is no doubt about it. And I'm sympathetic to you. I heed the words of Charles Spurgeon when he said, some ministers should be forced to hear their own sermons. They would cry out, my punishment is too great to bear. <laughs> I listen to them. I do. I, I, I work with them all week. So I am sympathetic. But, but notice the challenge to the ministry that he's going to face, that you have to face the same challenge, that sometimes it's harder to hear this than it is something smoother or easier or sweeter or more wrapped in a story. But again, what will it be when the end comes? The last thing we see here is the reward for ministry. So I want you to see, do you see how Paul is handing the baton to Timothy? He's saying, Timothy, I want you to fulfill your ministry. You're doing it in the presence of God. Continue to preach the word and do it in spite of the challenges. So for you too, even though you're not preachers, you have the same, you're in the presence of God. You have gifts and abilities for the purposes of God. You're going to face challenges. And then he finishes with fulfill it by looking at the reward. Look with me at five to eight. He says, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So it's really giving us a picture of the ministry. Uh, preachers do work more than Sunday morning, if it's a surprise to you. Uh, it's more than preaching and praying. There's a host of things that he is calling Timothy to fulfill. But, but do you notice what he's doing here? He's saying, fulfill your ministry. And then he says, for. So, so he's giving a reason. He's giving a motivation to Timothy to fulfill his ministry. He says, and he refers to his own life. He says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. So Paul has been in this Mamertine prison. It was an underground prison. It had no light except from the hole at the top. It had an overwhelming stench. There was death around him. He would be in that prison for a year. He would be released ultimately and then, and then that would lead to his head being placed on a block, a sword being raised. And then he enters glory. So he knows that. He, he says, my life is being poured out as a drink offering. He's using this Old Testament, Old Testament imagery of the priest pouring the wine. 
and a kind of hissing. It's like an offering to the Lord. I don't want you thinking Paul's nervous in prison. He doesn't think this is kind of an unfortunate event. Oh, no, things went sideways with the government. I, I, I became guilty from Nero's verdict of sedition. And Paul said, no, Paul, he says it passively. I am being poured out as if the Lord Jesus himself is pouring out his life. And we know that he knows that it's Jesus who is leading to his death because he says, my departure is soon. And the word for departure, that, that was a Greek word used for the loosening of a rope when a ship would weigh anchor and set sail. Paul sees his life. He's sailing to the other shore. He's sailing to the golden shore. He knows this is the end. This is the end. But what gives him such confidence, though? Well, look, he's, he looks back on his life. He says, I've fought the fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. He's not boastful. He, he, he just doesn't have any regrets. Notice what he says, I fought the fight. I mean, think about Paul's life, the physical persecution, the social, the relational, the religious persecution he faced. He stayed in the game, though, didn't he? A Demas, we're going to see next week, he departs because he's in love with the world. Paul never deserted. He never retreated. He never went AWOL. He stayed in the battle. He didn't always look pretty in the battle, perhaps, but he remained in the battle. Or he says, I finished the race. He wasn't disqualified. Now, he, he doesn't say he won the race, which I'm really thankful for. He said, I finished it. We're talking completion, not perfection here. He finished the race. I mean, you know how people, they have the zeal of, of, of faith in Christianity. And then over the years, it just kind of begins to just die out under its own weight. Not for Paul. He finished the race. He kept the faith. He was a good steward. He was entrusted with the gospel. He didn't fade away. He didn't minimize the gospel. He didn't water it down. I mean, Paul here is just speaking to his life that God's grace had preserved him. And so he has confidence in death. And his confidence in death is looking back at the grace of God through his life. That's why I always tell you, know your histories. Know where God has moved in your life. Know where God, only you know your history like you do. Where has God moved? Where has his grace been sufficient to enable you to remain faithful? That is the evidence of God's mercy in your life. We need to look back and be able to see that. And that is what gave him the hope going forward. Notice in the last verse, he says, henceforth there is laid up for me. A crown of righteousness. Remember how in the Greek games uh, that the winners of a race would be given a garland of laurel. And, and here he says, I will be given a crown of righteousness. I don't think, he says, on that day. So I don't think it's a metal crown that he's going to have and he gets to keep on some shelf. No, it's a metaphor. It's a picture that on that day he will be crowned with well done. You are righteous, you're innocent, you're forgiven, you're with me forever. He's looking to that day where his justification, his sanctification, it will be complete and it will be declared, forgiven, adopted, shame and guilt removed with his Savior forever. Not just him, though. Do you notice? That isn't just a promise for preachers. That's a promise for all who loved his appearing. Do you love, what's, what's it even mean to love his appearing? 
I mean, to love his appearing is to want him to return, to, to make all things right. To love his appearing is to be thankful of what he has done, how he has died, how he has suffered and, and, and made a place for us. To love his appearing is to be eager to see him. To what degree do you think or dwell upon him coming back? Some of our lives are so sweet, we may not even give a thought to it. And as you get older, it kind of presses on you more as you see the runway begin to evaporate before your eyes. But to what degree do you love his appearing? Because he seems to indicate that for all those who loved his appearing, that's an evidence of genuine faith, that I want him to come back. I, I want him to establish his kingdom. I want him to rule. I, I want him to receive all the glory that he deserves. To what degree do you want that? Do you desire that? To what degree do you think about that moment? You know, C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, in the final book, The Last Battle, in the final couple chapters, he's speaking to the children who have died, and he speaks to them about life forevermore. And he says these words, it says, uh, and as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. We can most truly say that they have all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. You know, Lewis looks at our world and calls it the Shadowlands. What we are living in is the Shadowland. It's, the, it's kind of shadows of what is. It's not the real it's just a shadow of the real. What we have is the substance ahead, the real. That will be the world that he has made, the new heavens and the new earth. And Paul is saying to Timothy, to fulfill your ministry, you have to have an eye on that day. You have to have an eye on that day. If not, you're going to be distracted by the shiny things out there. Many of them very good and very nice and very appropriate. But clearly Paul here is at the very end the very end of this letter, saying that we are called to be sober-minded, we are called to endure suffering, we are called to do the work of an evangelist, and we are to fulfill the ministry that God has given to us. Let's just take a moment now and ask God for grace and mercy that these truths, that we may be good listeners, and that we may gain from this, that we might grow up in our salvation, and then I'll pray for us in just a moment. Father, your word tells us that those whose heart is the highway to Zion are blessed. Father, grant to us uh, that we might be heavenly-minded and not, not to be heavenly-minded in some form of escapism, uh, 
but to be heavenly minded that we might be good for others on this earth that we might seek to serve, that we might seek to sacrifice, that we might uh, seek to love well, that we might recognize we, even right now, we dwell in your presence, that your presence fills the earth, that there is a day that will be where your son will come and be judge of all, the living and the dead. Father, may these things excite in us a desire to be conformed to your image through the preaching of your word. May it give us the the grace and the strength we need to be a church that is marked by caring for the weak, for the unborn, for the disenfranchised, for the suffering, that we might be a people that, like Christ, would weep over the lost, Father, do this work in us through your spirit and for your glory. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.